Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them and will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. People are starving for spiritual connection today. This is maybe one of the most remarkable features of our world. Um, even though more and more people are leaving traditional religion, that does not mean that people are leaving faith or God. Not at all. Uh, people are leaving institutional religion, uh, but they are not um, abandoning faith. They're not abandoning God. So you'll hear people talk about being spiritual, but not religious. Or they'll talk about deconstructing their faith, but not abandoning their faith. Maybe one of the most helpful ways to understand this is to listen to Tara Isabella Burton. She is a writer uh, in New York City and one of the world's premier experts on spirituality in America, especially among younger people. She says that people are not rejecting religion, they're remixing religion. She calls this the remixed generation. And listen to how she describes them in her latest book. She says, today's remixed reject authority institution, creed, and moral universalism. They value intuition, personal feeling, and experience. They prioritize intuitional spirituality over institutional religion. They prioritize intuitional spirituality over institutional religion. And I'm guessing as we read that, many of you are probably nodding your head in agreement because this feels very natural. It feels very intuitive to us. In other words, many of us would say, whether you're exploring faith or even if you identify as a follower of Jesus, we might all be inclined to say something like, you know what? The most important thing about a spiritual path is not finding something that's true. After all, who's to say? It's finding something that works for you. Because everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. That's like the foundation stone of our society. We, we would never doubt that. So here's the question. How does Jesus fit into all of this? Because even though people are remixing religion, inevitably Jesus is going to be at least one of the ingredients in that mix for many, many people. So what would Jesus say? How would he speak into this? What is authentic spirituality? Would Jesus say he's all about intuitional spirituality or is he more about traditional religion? Well, this passage that we just read, Jesus actually shows us. And one of the amazing things about it is that uh, he shows us that it's all about his relationship to the Bible. 
And now think about that. If, if anything represents institutional religion and binding dogma in our culture, it's religion, God's word. And yet here Jesus is showing us that we will never understand our relationship to the Bible if we don't understand Jesus's relationship to the Bible. So let's explore this together by seeing three things that Jesus shows us about God's word and what authentic spirituality really is. Jesus shows us that God's word is an authoritative word, it's a justifying word, and it's a liberating word. An authoritative word, a justifying word, and a liberating word. Okay, first, it's an authoritative word. Jesus begins this passage by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, law or prophets is a shorthand way of referring to the whole Hebrew scripture. That's what you and I would call the Old Testament. So apparently there were people who thought that Jesus didn't take God's word very seriously. So there are places where you see Jesus telling people that certain Old Testament laws are no longer binding on them. For instance, laws about what we can eat. So these would have been traditional religious people who thought that Jesus was undermining the authority of God's word. Jesus basically is saying, think again. I did not come to undermine the authority of God's word, but to uphold the full authority of of God's word. And we see that, especially as Jesus continues on in this passage. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Basically, Jesus is saying, I take God's word so seriously that, that not even the, the dots on the I's and the crosses on the T's uh, will pass away, that every single part of that law has full, eternal, enduring authority over every single part of our lives, and it will never pass away. So here's where we're at. Jesus is telling traditional religious people, I take God's word more seriously than you do. And in fact, when you look at his life, you see that. If you read through the Gospels, those are the historical accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, you will see that Jesus is constantly quoting Scripture. It, it was the basis of his whole life. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Um, have you ever noticed that when you are um, in times of great stress or pressure, that's when who you really are comes out, Right? The moments of greatest stress in your life always reveal the basis of who and what we really are. If you look at the moments of greatest stress in Jesus' life, for instance, when he was being persecuted or mocked or falsely arrested, or even when he was on the cross, what comes out? Scripture. Scripture comes out of it. It was the basis for his whole life. Now, here's why this is so important. Like I said, many people are remixing religion and many people are attracted to Jesus, and, and they want Jesus to be a part of their spiritual mix. But we look at the Bible, and, and we see that there are parts of the Bible that, to us, they feel primitive, outdated, offensive, um, oppressive. And so we say, well, that part doesn't apply to me. We just reject it. Here's the problem. Jesus says that all of Scripture is true and has full authority over every part of our life. And Jesus himself lived like that. So how can we claim to follow Jesus and yet reject huge parts of the very thing that he based his whole life on? If we do that, then we're not really following Jesus. We're following ourselves. 
because that's not the real Jesus. That's just a made-up Jesus. That, that's a Jesus whose real function in our lives is simply to co-sign a way of living we've already decided for ourselves. And listen, I know that sounds a little harsh, but I'm just asking us to be honest with ourselves. Remember, we live in a culture that says everyone should be free to live however they want. Our culture says that, that we should be free from any external authority source and that instead we should um, be true to ourselves and follow our own hearts because that's the only way that we can become our authentic self. Now, if that's you, here's what I would invite you to consider. The reason you reject the authority of God's word over your life is not because you don't want to have any external authority source in your life. It's because you already have some other external authority source in your life. So for instance, uh, our culture says things like, you know, you sh we should never let anyone impose any external truth upon us. Why do we say things like that? Well, we might say, well, it's because we have evolved as a society and those things are just self-evident to anyone who's using common sense. No, that's because philosophers and political theorists came up with these ideas three to 400 years ago, and those ideas have formed the basis of our modern Western society. And even though you may not know their names, those guys are living rent-free in your heads and you are giving their voices authority in your life. So let's think about it. To say you should never let anyone impose an external truth claim on you, that is an external truth claim that's being imposed upon you. Or if we say everyone should decide for themselves how to live, that is a way of living that you didn't decide for yourself. Friends, here's the point. There's no such thing as living without some ultimate authority in your life. You will give some voice, some word, some view of reality, you will give it ultimate authority in your life. It's unavoidable. So th that means that we can never reject living under the authority of God's word without living under the authority of some other word. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he brought himself under the full authority of God's word. That means that if we want to follow him, and I mean the real Jesus, not a made-up Jesus, then we too need to bring ourselves underneath the authority, the full authority of God's word. Now that leads to our next point. We've just seen Jesus shows us that God's word is an authoritative word, but secondly, he shows us it's a justifying word. Now here's what I mean by that. Um, we just saw that Jesus says even the smallest parts of God's word have enduring authority over our lives, but then he says, therefore, which means here's why this is so important. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus talks about being called least and called great, what is that? Jesus is tapping into one of the deepest desires of every human heart. We all need to know that our lives have significance. We want to know that our lives matter. One of our greatest fears is being called least, and one of our deepest desires is being called great. We want to know that our lives have meaning. The Bible has a word for that. It's called justification. And all that means is that we all need to have something about our lives that justifies our existence in this world. We need to have something we can point to that we can say, this is how I know my life matters. This is what gives my life meaning. 
We all have something like that. And whatever it is for you, whether it's your intelligence or your career or your looks or your money or your parenting or the love of a romantic partner or your commitment to a cause like democracy or the nation or being on the right side of history or some combination of those things, whatever it is, we all have something like that in our lives. And that's how we know that our lives matter. And Jesus would say, whatever it is in your life, he would call that your righteousness. Your righteousness is how you know that your life matters. So if you look, as Jesus continues on, he tells his audience, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So for Jesus's original Jewish audience, um, their righteousness, the way they knew their lives mattered, was um, their obedience to God's word, their religious performance. Their righteousness um, was their performance, their obedience to God's word, and that's how they knew their lives mattered. Now, we postmodern, post-Christian, post-everything people would look at that, and we would say, well, that is a great example of everything we've just been liberated from. But here's the thing. That does not mean that we don't have a righteousness. It just means we have a different righteousness. We have a different righteousness. In our modern Western culture, our righteousness is being free from any external authority source so that we can create our own meaning and identity. Now, here's the problem with this, and here's really what this means for us. Think about this. This does not mean that we have... Um, gotten rid of external authority sources. Remember, we've just traded external authority sources. But here's the question I want to ask. Um, if, if we are free now to create our own meaning and identity, the question I want to ask is, how is that working for us? Remember, we haven't gotten rid of authority sources. We've just traded authority sources. And now our uh, meaning in life, our righteousness in life is being free to create our own meaning and identity. How is that working for us? If we look at our world, if we look at our society, we have never had more personal freedom than we have now, and yet we have never been more miserable than we are now. We are literally swimming in personal freedom, and yet we are starving for meaning. We've never had more personal freedom than we do now, and yet we have never been more anxious, depressed, lonely, addicted, distracted, and fragmented than we are now. That the righteousness of personal freedom is failing us. One of the most stunning examples of this that I've seen recently is the TV show Fleabag. I've talked about it before. It's a brilliant show because it's so honest. It's all about a modern, liberated woman who is swimming in personal freedom. She drinks a lot, cusses a lot, she parties a lot, she owns her own business, she has lots and lots of sex. She's swimming in personal freedom, but she's miserable. And at one point later in the show, she starts hanging out with a priest, not because she's seeking God, she doesn't even believe in God, but, well, it's because the priest is an attractive young dude and she's interested in him. And at one point in the show, she's just overcome with grief and guilt and misery. And so she goes to the church and starts talking with the priest and, and, and he invites her. He says, hey, would you like to confess? She has never unburdened her heart to anyone before. But as she starts talking and sharing, the priest very gently, very patiently, he's listening to her and helping her. And, and she's getting more and more honest until ultimately she just, she's just weeping. And she says this, she says, I think I just want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, 
because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. And I know that's why people want people like you in their lives because you just tell them what to do and what they'll get out the end of it. And even though I don't believe any of it, and I know scientifically nothing that I do makes any difference in the world, anyway, I'm still scared. Why am I still scared? What is going on with her? The righteousness of personal freedom is failing her. And she is feeling the need, the deep need for an authoritative, justifying word to come into her life from outside of herself, a word that can order her life and heal her heart. And one of the most amazing things to me about this is that this is a British show. You know, Britain is, is a deeply secular country. Belief in God is mocked. And the woman who wrote this show, Phoebe Wallerbridge, she's brilliant, but she's a secular woman too. And yet here's this modern, secular, atheist woman telling us that the narrative of personal freedom is ultimately empty and meaningless. The righteousness of personal freedom is failing us in our world. Friends, you are going to give some word ultimate authority in your life. And whatever that word is, we need for it to be a word that can justify our existence and give meaning to our lives. Whatever that word is, we need it to give meaning to our lives and to justify our existence. So here's where we're at so far. Is Jesus just telling us, you know what? Forget about that intuitional spirituality we prize in our modern world and just go back to traditional religion. Is that what he's saying? Well, before we find out, we need to see one more thing about God's word according to Jesus. We've seen that it's an authoritative word. We've seen that it's a justifying word. But lastly, and ultimately, we need to see it's a liberating word. Because right at the very end, again, notice Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, literally abounds more and more, beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and those guys were like the all-star team of religious observance, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, unless your commitment and conformity to God's word is infinitely superior to the most devoted religious people who ever lived, then you will never enter the presence of God. Yikes! You know, someone once observed that C.S. Lewis didn't really care for the Sermon on the Mount. C.S. Lewis said, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I mean, he said it all. What Jesus says here at the end of this passage is like a sledgehammer. In fact, it's so demanding that many people have said, you know what? Jesus never intended for us to live like this in the first place because no one can do it. Now, here's the problem. On the one hand, those people are right. No one can live like this. But on the other hand, Jesus absolutely intends for us to live like this because he says so over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. So what do we do with that? Well, here's what we do with it. We have to make sure that we connect the end of the passage with the beginning of the passage. If all we had was the end of the passage, it would be easy to think that Jesus is all about traditional religion. Just do the right thing, live a perfect life, and God will love you and accept you. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Traditional religion. If all we had was the end, we would think that's what Jesus is all about. Traditional religion. But we also have the beginning of the passage. And we have to keep those two things connected. Because in the beginning, what does Jesus say? I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets 
but to fulfill them. Now that word fulfill is one of the most important words in this whole passage and really in the whole Bible. Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the entirety of God's word. What does that mean? Well, what is the Bible? What is God's word? Well, at one level, it's moral instruction. It's God telling us, here's how you must live. But at another level, it's the stories of people failing to live like that. Beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve and then going all the way through the Bible. The Bible is the story of failure after failure after failure to live according to God's word. So the Bible is, yes, moral instruction. It's also narrative story about our failure to live according to God's word. But the Bible is also promise after promise that God will one day bring redemption, healing, and renewal, not just to our lives, but to the whole world. Jesus says, I came to fulfill all of God's word. How does he do that? Tim Keller, the great preacher and writer in New York City, puts it perfectly. He points out that there are really two ways to fulfill a law. The first way is you can obey it perfectly. The second way is you can pay the penalty for breaking it. The amazing thing about Jesus Christ is he does both of those things. When Jesus came to earth, he fulfilled the law by living a perfect life. But on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law again by dying a sacrificial death. Not only does Jesus earn the love of God by living a perfect life, he also pays the penalty for all of our failures by dying a sacrificial death. With Jesus Christ, you get both. It's a double fulfillment of the law. Friends, the gospel is a word of liberation because not only does it liberate us to live a a new life in God, it also liberates us from the penalty of all our failures. With Jesus Christ, you get both of those things. So that when Jesus Christ comes into your life, he brings the power of God for a new life that is far, far beyond mere religious modification, mere behavior modification. That's traditional religion. Traditional religion is all about behavior modification. Do the right thing. Live a good life and God will love you. But the gospel is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. And we're going to see that as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to show us over and over that it's not just about behavior modification. In other words, it's not just about don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't take vengeance. It's about having your heart cleansed from anger and contempt, having your heart cleansed from obsessive fantasies and desires, having your heart cleansed from from the desire for vengeance and retribution. You know, that's traditional religion, just behavior modification. But what is it that we're longing for when we talk about intuitional spirituality? What is that all about? If you think about it, it's all about having an experience. It's about being on a journey. It's about having a personal relationship. Friends, that that is exactly what Jesus Christ is offering us. Jesus is inviting you on a journey of spiritual transformation. He doesn't only want to change your behavior. He wants to transform your heart. Now, what does all of that mean for us today? Well, let me just leave you with this. Dallas Willard was one of the great spiritual masters of the 20th century. He put it like this. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to get out on the road and start following Jesus? Dallas Willard said it like this. He said, disciples of Jesus are those who are with him, learning to be like him. 
Disciples of Jesus are those who are with him, learning to be like him. Notice there's two parts to this. There's the being with, and there's the living like. It, the, the being with, that sounds very intuitional, very relational. The living like, that sounds more institutional, more traditional. But here's the thing. With Jesus, both of those things go together. In other words, there is no living like Jesus apart from being with Jesus. Friends, when Jesus comes into your life, he brings the power for a new life, a new heart. And the power for that life, the power for that new heart, it's not in you. It's in Jesus there is no living like Jesus apart from being with Jesus. Of course, apart from him, living like this really is impossible. But with Jesus, all things are possible. So if you're exploring faith this morning, if you're someone who's exploring the claims of Christianity, then here's my encouragement to you. I would start with just being with Jesus. Just be with him. In other words, have you ever read one of the Gospels cover to cover? try it. Or that's a, one of the best ways to get to know Jesus. Or maybe you join a community group and spend time with other people who are learning to be with Jesus in order to live like Jesus. But the point is just get out on the road and start following Jesus. You know, you can always have your old life back anytime. But if you are a Christian this morning, then here's my question for you. Do you consider yourself not just a Christian, but a disciple? Of Jesus. In other words, have you consciously apprenticed yourself to Jesus, not just to be with him, but to live like him? Because there are many people who would say, oh, I trust Jesus' death on the cross for me personally, but nothing has ever changed about their life. Is, is your faith, is, is your trust in Jesus, is it changing your life? In other words, are you not just being with, but are you learning to live like Jesus? I would encourage you that if nothing has changed about your life or if very little has changed about your life, to take more seriously not just being with Jesus, but living like Jesus. The power for a new life, the power for a new heart is not in you. It's in Jesus. But the being with is always intended to produce the living like. Friends, the gospel is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. Jesus is giving you the power for a new life, a new heart. And not just to be with him, but because he actually intends you to live like him. And the reason he can do it is because he already lived a perfect life and died a perfect death for you. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we praise you this morning for sending Jesus to fulfill everything that you have told us about how you want us to live. Lord, you created this world with something in mind. You created human beings with something in mind. And that something in mind was to glorify you with our lives, to enjoy you forever. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would liberate us to walk with you, to have relationship with you, to be on a journey with you by being freed through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to be with Jesus and that in being with him, we would learn to live like him. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.